series today uh, called Misinterpret. Misinterpret. How many of you, if you're being honest, super honest, and you don't have to raise your hand, uh, how many of you, you actually, you know, ask yourself the question, you read the Bible on a regular basis? Just, just ask yourself the question in your own mind, a, a regular basis. And now I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, what's regular? <laughs> well, I mean, it depends on how you define it, I guess. I mean, if, you're, if your Bible reading consists only of your church gathering, so in our case, Saturday mornings, and that's the only time that you're ever opening the Bible, you may say, well, isn't that regular? Well, I suppose... But I don't know that that's enough for you. You know, there comes a point where you have to learn to feed yourself. How many of you have kids in the room? So, you know, you start by feeding the, feeding the baby, and, you know, because the baby cannot feed itself. Um, and so you, you're there. You are there. And we talked about parenting last week. You're there. You're taking care of that baby's needs. But there comes a point where you want that baby to start to learn to have solid food. Uh, and then there comes a point where you want that baby to actually feed themselves. And then if you're really doing well, you want them to cook their own meals. Do you know what I'm saying? Because they're coming back to live with you when they're 45 these days, so at least they should know how to cook, right? Just a joke for some of you who are experiencing that. But, but you want them to learn to feed themselves. Um, so if you get anything out of this series at all, I want you to learn to actually pick up the Bible and have a steady diet of reading the Bible on your own. If you're just depending on the time where you come and gather in church... You know, I don't think that's enough. I think you're going to go dry doing that. I think you're going to just be unsatisfied doing that. You say, oh, my goodness, reading the Bible, it's intimidating to me. I don't, I don't like reading. I don't, li it's, yeah, I don't know what to do with that. Um, nowadays, uh, because of the, of the technology that we have, uh, it's, it's so much easier than it used to be. It used to be that we'd carry around, you know, these big bricks to, to church meetings, and I still have one. I still like my brick, okay? But uh, it used to be like that, and, you know, you'd see people on Sunday mornings traditionally, and they'd walk around with their big brick, and you'd say, okay, that's a, that's a Bible person. They're going to a church. Nowadays, you've got it on your phone, and you got it on your phone for free, uh, the, the most popular app out there for Bible reading is called YouVersion, Y-O-U, as in you, and the word version. Download it on iTunes or the Play Store or whatever. It is so popular. And YouVersion has audio to it. So if you're really like you don't like reading or your vision is bad or whatever, you can listen to it. Okay, sometimes I'm at the gym and I just listen. Uh, to the guy reading the, reading the text. Um, so you can get the Bible very easily. You have no excuse in terms of accessibility. Uh, but getting regularity is the hard part. So can I give you just a tip? If you get nothing else from this series, start from an easy, easy book in the Bible. Uh, you can pick any one of the Gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Usually people like John and they like Mark. Really simple, really easy narrative style. This is what happened. This is who Jesus was. This is what he did. 
So you start there and then just continue read the whole New Testament. New Testament's a little skinny little book like this. If you've read a if you've read a comic book, you can read the New Testament. It's very very slim. Yes, it's 27 books, but most of them are little little letters. They're not long. I think the longest book in the in the New Testament is what? The book of Romans, 16 chapters. Joe's 16 Romans. Acts there, Acts 20 28 chapters. Um, but it, they're small. So, I mean, you, you can do that, and once you do that, do it again. Reread the whole New Testament again. Then what's going to happen is you're going to start to develop an appetite, an interest to start picking around in the Old Testament. And the easiest way to do that is to say, well, if something is quoted in the New Testament, if Jesus is speaking and he's quoting the book of Genesis, we say, hey, let me read the book of Genesis and see what that was all about. And you start to develop a framework of the whole story of Jesus and all of the background that led up to it. Okay, that's an easy, easy method to start reading the Bible for yourself so that you're learning to feed yourself and you're learning to eat solid food. All right, so what I'm going to do today to start the series off is give, is give you the nine best ways to, to misinterpret the Bible. I'm just going to teach you the best practices just to totally, totally misinterpret the Bible. So the idea is don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. But most of us do it when we read the Bible. So I'm going to identify these things and give you some fun examples of, of these kinds of mistakes that we make when we misinterpret the Scripture. And you see the, the, the guy there, and he's got his fingers crossed. He's got his eyes blindfolded, he's got his Bible upside down, and he pops it open, and he puts his finger down, and he's, okay, it's time to read the Bible, you know? That's a really risky way of reading the Bible. Uh, sometimes I think that we insult God when we do this, because God wrote a book, but we don't read his book the same way we read any other book, as if as if it's a magic book or something. I mean, it's not magic. It's a piece of literature. God has used the medium of literature to speak. Well, how do you read the way you read any other book? And doing it this way, I mean, you wouldn't read any other book like that. But we do it to the Bible sometimes, and that's not a great way of doing it. That's kind of treating the Bible like it's a magic book, a book of spells or something, and it certainly is not that, all right? So I'm going to give you one at a time the nine best practices to misinterpret the Bible. See if you find yourself in any one of these. Number one, to interpret one piece of scripture in a way that contradicts another. So what we do is we read one passage and, you know, maybe, and maybe it was, there's a bit of time that elapses, and then we read another passage, and the way that we read the second passage is so that we set up a contradiction. So we're, we're basically reading it with the intention to set up a contradiction. So the classic case in point here uh, is on how is a person saved? How does a person believe in Jesus? How does a person uh, become a Christian? Do they have to do things in order to be a Christian? Do they have to be a nice person and be baptized and go to church and, you know, pay their taxes? And does that make them a Christian? Or what, how does that work? And there's two passages of Scripture that people classically 
set up as a contradiction. Yet one is in Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Yes. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Wonderful passage. And then we take another passage, and this one is in James chapter 2. So Paul wrote Ephesians, James wrote James, and this is what James says. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. Well, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And so what we do is we say, well, James says faith without works is dead, but Paul says uh, that, it, that it is the gift of God and you're saved by grace. Aha, we have a contradiction. Well, do we? And the answer is no, we don't. Uh, they're both talking on different angles of the same subject. You have Paul who's saying uh, to, to a group of people, you better watch out. Because if you encounter people who say you must do such and such and such and such and such in order to be saved, I'm telling you, you can't do anything to be saved. It is the gift of God that God has given to you so that no one would boast and say, ha ha, look what I did. I'm the super Christian and I've saved myself. And Paul says, you cannot, you cannot work your way to salvation, point final. And then you have James who's dealing with a group of people who says, you know, well, we believe. Well, really, do you? Is your faith doing anything in your life? Is it a transformational faith? You know, a person can say they believe, but if they say they believe and there's no evidence of that and there's no, there's no change in their life, there's no substance to what they say they believe, then their faith is a dead faith. A person says, I believe in Jesus, but they still live the same way. So he's, he's talking about a group of people who, who are doing one thing, and Paul's talking about a group of people who are doing another. So we don't have a contradiction there. Even though we may be tempted to set one up, we shouldn't do that. Do you understand what I mean so far? Oh, but you know your, your question? Some of you are confused. You're shaking your head. Why? I'm bold. I'm going to ask you a question. Why? Yes, well, and we, all, we, we often notice it, but we have to be careful because James is addressing one group and Paul is addressing another, but there isn't a contradiction here. Again, you have a group of people saying, oh, I believe, I believe, I believe, and James is saying, okay, so the poor guy comes into your church, uh, into your, your gathering, into your setting, you don't help him. You say, I believe, I believe, I believe, but you don't do anything to help that person. You say, God bless you, be warm, and be well fed. Oh, I believe in Jesus. <laughs> and James is saying, excuse me, do you really? Your faith appears to be a dead faith. Now, Paul is dealing with a different group. And Paul is saying, okay, these people who are going to tell you you must do such and such and such and such and such, you know, men, you have to be circumcised, uh, you know, you, you require surgery <laughs> in order to be a Christian. Paul's saying, you watch out for that because it is by grace you are saved, not by works. 
Do you understand the difference? Two different groups, two different scenarios, but there isn't a contradiction. There's two different angles, okay? Uh, problem number two, or way we misinterpret uh, uh, Scripture a second way. We interpret a passage in a way that would have not made any sense to the original audience. Okay, the Bible is ancient literature. It's ancient. It's not CNN. It's ancient literature. The original audience was the ancient world. So in order for us to understand what a text means, we must understand what it meant to them. Yes, it applies to us today. Yes, it is God's word that transcends time and culture and geography and circumstance and race and religion. Yes, yes, yes. But it is a book, and you must understand what did it mean to the people who first heard it? What did it mean to that audience? Once I understand that, then I can know what it means to me. It means the same thing, just maybe a different wrapping paper. But it, the meaning is the same. And here's a couple of, of texts that we do this with. Uh, one is in the book of Revelation. And Revelation is one of the most butchered uh, books in the entire Bible, the way that we read this book. I'll give you a couple of examples today. And here's a passage out of Revelation when you see the, the wrath of God coming on the world and uh, all of these different, uh, different images of, of wrath are unleashed. Uh, and verses 7 to 10 of Revelation 9, talking about these locusts that come out of this place called the abyss. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Just try and picture it in your mind, you know. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair was like women's hair. I don't know what women's hair looks like this, but anyway. And their teeth like lion's teeth. And they had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. Wow, what a description, right? They have tails and stings like scorpions. And their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. And what we do with a text like this is we say, aha, it's an Apache helicopter. And I've heard people teach this. They say, ah, look at that. Look at the way that that description is. What the author is saying is that they see an Apache helicopter, which is a, a helicopter used in war in the, you know, in the 20th, 21st century. They say, aha, that's what John, the author of Revelation, is seeing, an Apache helicopter. Now, we have to be really careful with that kind of an interpretation of that passage, because if it's an Apache helicopter, hello, in first century uh, Rome or in the island of Patmos, which is where John is writing this book from, he's in exile uh, on the island of Patmos. The first century church is under persecution. You have a Roman emperor there who is opposed, opposed, opposed to Christianity. There's lots of persecution that's happening. And you have this piece of apocalyptic literature that's being written by John. 
uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and his objective is to encourage these people who are being persecuted. And he talks about this kind of cosmic battle between good and evil, and he shows them this huge picture uh, of the future, and, and the ultimate winner is God. It's a message of great encouragement to these people. But if we start saying that that image, for example, is an Apache helicopter, then those readers and those hearers of that first message, it would have meant absolutely nothing to them if that's the way that we interpret the text. What we're doing there is we're saying the text is for us, but not for them. No, it's for them. And in apocalyptic literature, it's very common to have very wild kind of almost like the writers on LSD, if I may be frank, you know, we think that the legalization of pot will make people see things. Well, thank God LSD isn't legalized yet, all right? But if the writer of the book of Revelation, you read what he writes, you're like, what, is this guy on some kind of narcotic? Apocalyptic literature is loaded with these kinds of graphic images, and they're meant to convey an overall point. But if we push that interpretation, we say, aha, it's a modern piece of techno technological warfare, we need to be very careful of that. I'm not saying that it absolutely cannot be that, but wow, what would the first century hearer say if that's the correct interpretation? Do you understand what I'm saying? So you've got to, you've got to put yourself back in their shoes. What would it have meant to them and what type of literature are we dealing with here? Another passage, uh, classic uh, uh, blunder of a text, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 8 to 13. And this text is used to justify the idea that miracles have ceased. And that miracles cannot happen today. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, and the greatest of these is love. And the argument is when the perfect appears, the imperfect passes away, and the perfect is the completion of the Bible. And therefore, since we have the complete Bible, there is no more need for miracles. There's no more need for a word of knowledge or the gift of prophecy or any of these things. We don't need these anymore because we have the Bible case closed. Well, this cannot be the meaning of the text because the original readers of this text knew nothing about the idea of the completion of Scripture. They're reading a letter that is sent to them by the Apostle Paul. When they look at this text and they see the perfect to come, what they're thinking about most probably is the coming of the Lord and the perfection that will happen and the change to everything that will happen when the perfect appears. The very next verse says, seek the, the spiritual gifts. So there's no cessation of spiritual gifts that can be taught with this passage because if there's anything that the passage cannot mean, it cannot mean that the spiritual gifts 
have ceased. Because the first century here, it would have made no sense at all to them. Do you understand what I'm saying? When we divorce that uh, in our interpretation, we divorce the idea that this is for a first century audience or an ancient world, what we're doing is we're saying it only applies to us. But it did not apply to them. No, it applies to them first and then to us. So if you want to know what it means, what did it mean to them? Some of you are looking at me like, I never heard this before. I'm telling you, it will unlock a door for you when you're reading the Bible. What did it mean to them? It will get you out of so much trouble. You will, make much, you will have much less confusion uh, when you read. Remember, the Bible is not CNN or Fox News or NBC or CBS or whatever. It isn't that. It is, a, it is a book written, written to an ancient audience. Blunder number three that we make. It's not breaking news, right, Joe? It's not breaking news. Uh, uh, blunder number three. Interpret a passage without regard to its genre. So in the Bible, you have many different kinds of literature. You have history there. You have poetry there. The Bible contains magnificent poetry. Uh, you have wisdom literature there. You have prophecy. You have, of course, the apocalypse, which is the book of Revelation. And each type of literature has to be read with respect for that kind of literature. You do not read the book of Revelation the same way you read the Gospels. The Gospels are a straight narrative. This is what Jesus looked like. This is who he was. This is what he did. The book of Revelation, again, is a piece of apocalyptic literature. And you must respect it in that sense. Otherwise, you're going to be looking for Apache helicopters. And, you know, the next president of the United States is going to be the Antichrist. And all of these things, when you have forgotten, wait a minute, what did it mean to them? Before I look at what it means to me, classic case in point, uh, Proverbs 22, verse 6. And we, we looked at this last week. Um, start off children uh, uh, in the way that they should go, and even when they are old, they will not turn from it. Or in the, old, the tra older translations, train up a child in, in his way, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. Train up a child in the way he should go. When he's old, he won't depart from it. You know, and we say to people, you bring your child to, to, to church, you teach them the Bible, and you know, even when they grow old, and they, if they stray away from God, and they, they they, they walk away from the faith because you trained up your child in the way they should go. They will turn back to God. It's a promise from Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6, and it will always work And because it's God's word. And Okay, a proverb. This is a piece of literature. Uh, uh, proverbs were essentially pieces of advice. So here's my advice to you, the writer of the Proverbs is saying. Train up a child in his way, and that in his way could mean many, many things. Uh, as I said last week, probably a better way of interpreting this passage is find out the wiring of your child. What is his way or her way? What is the way that God has hardwired your child? Train up your child in that way, and when that child gets older, they will not depart from it. Well, that makes kind of like logical sense, but Proverbs are not meant to be interpreted as this is going to happen 100% of the time. This is a blanket promise from God, and it will always, always happen that way. I've met many, many parents who have waited and waited for their children to come back to God. 
and some of them have buried those children. Does that mean that the promise in Proverbs 20, 22 is false and it didn't work? Well, no, it's how are you interpreting this passage? And you've got to be fair to the piece of literature. It's a, these are golden nuggets of advice, but they are not intended to be up. Oh, it, you, we must pigeonhole this text, and it will come true 100% of the time. That is not the intention of the writer. Do you understand what, what I'm saying? Still a little, a little bit blank. Okay, maybe you've never heard this before. Kind of feels like a little bit of a classroom, I know. But wow, respect the piece of literature that you are reading. I mean, you can read Psalms, for example. Some of the Psalms are extremely violent. Some of the Psalms, you have the psalmist praying for the destruction and violent death of his enemies, his enemies' spouses, children, aunts, uncles, dogs, and cats, okay? We call this an imprecatory psalm. This is, this is meant to express the heart of the writer and their, their quest for justice against their enemies. But it doesn't mean, oh, okay, now I can pray this type of prayer against my enemy that God will crush them, their families, and their, their offspring, and their dogs, and their cats. No, that's not how you should read that piece of literature or, or interpret it. Do you understand what I'm saying? So respect the piece of literature that you're reading and you, you will make less blunders. Uh, number four, interpret a passage in a way not held by anyone in church history. So you, you read the passage, you interpret it a certain way, but nobody else for 2,000 years ever interpreted it that way, except your way is the right way. Do you think that that will work? I mean, that, that, may, be, that may be a little bit self-centered, perhaps. So Mark chapter 16, verse 17, classic case. And these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. And so there is a, an aberrant uh, doctrine and teaching that says, Aha, if a person does not speak in tongues, they are not a Christian. So this is the litmus test. They say, look, look, Mark 16 says, this will accompany them that believe they speak in tongues. So if a person doesn't speak in tongues, they therefore are not a believer. And this is a relatively new teaching, probably about 200 years old. United Pentecostal Church teaches this kind of thing. And they build a whole argument. They say, well, if a person is a Christian, that means they have the Holy Spirit. If they have the Holy Spirit, then at least they should speak in tongues. That should be the easiest thing. That should be the first thing. So if they don't speak in tongues, then they don't have the Holy Spirit. If they don't have the Holy Spirit, then they're not a Christian. Ha ha, Mark 16. Okay, this is not how the church historically interpreted Mark chapter 16. Uh, and, but, but a person who wants it to say that can make it say that even though that's not what it means. And if you read the passage, you will see basically what is being stated there is that people who believe and, and followers of Jesus, they are going to see on occasion supernatural things accompany them. It's not saying it's a blanket promise. It's just saying this is what you're going to see. This is the type of thing that you're going to see amongst these kinds of people. It is by no means a litmus test to prove whether or not they are a Christian. Don't interpret a passage in a way not held by anyone in church history. The way that God has brought the scripture to us is not in a little vacuum where it's just you and you interpret it one way and everybody else is wrong but you. 
It's to be interpreted in the light of community. That's one of the purposes of the church. Uh, problem number five, to interpret a passage without looking at its context. So you ignore the verses around it. You ignore the broader context. You ignore perhaps the type of literature that you're dealing with. You ignore the culture. You ignore the history. You ignore the geography. And you just yank the passage out of context and say, aha, we can't eat pork. Right? Read the book of Leviticus. Got a lot of prohibitions against things like pork. Now, some of you know that I come from a Jewish background. And I just need to tell you, I eat anything. Pork or not, okay? I eat all foods. Um, and, you know, I have no, no prohibitions against pork. And the reason is that, yes, certainly you have a prohibition in the, in the scripture about pork. But that prohibition has a context, doesn't it? When you have a million people walking through the, 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 the Middle East desert uh, and, you know, you have a time and a place there and a, and a setup there, and you have this prohibition. There's a dietary prohibition. It also had some spiritual significance there. But that was a very particular set of circumstances. And we see plenty of evidence, especially in the New Testament, that that was a cultural setup there, and that now you don't have that. That all points to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus that was made on the cross. So these kinds of ceremonial and dietary laws, these things had a time and a place and a culture, but those ultimately point to Christ. But when we don't appreciate the context, we say, uh, 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 the Bible says you can't eat pork. Well, I'm glad that I eat pork. And I'm doing okay. And, you know, if, uh, if I eat pork and people get upset, I just bless the pork and, you know, whatever. And I'll make it kosher. You know, I'm the, I'm the Jewish pastor. So, uh, you know, I can do that. I'm joking with you. You're so serious today. Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Another revelation mess. Um, and a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet and on her head, a crown of 12 stars. And she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. This passage was used very recently to say that Jesus Christ would return at the rapture on the 23rd of April, just a few weeks ago. And it was interpreted that way because of a supposed set of, of uh, astronomical uh, constellations lining up in a certain way and a strange but fictitious planet called Nubira that was supposed to line up a certain way. And ahaha, ah, the rapture is going to happen on April the 23rd. And you had people believing this. You can look it up online. Uh, and of course, the rapture did not happen on April the 23rd. Because to read this into the text is to totally rip it out of its context. And you've got to appreciate, hey, hold on, I'm dealing with a piece of literature here. I should at least respect the fact that there is a context to it. So what is that context? And Revelation 12 verses 1 and 2 a more sane interpretation would be that that's talking about Israel and the, the, the coming of the Messiah. And you have, you know, the woman clothed with the sun and the, the, the 12 stars. And this is a more sane interpretation because this is the way we see this kind of imagery in the rest of the scripture. Again, you put it into a context and it makes more sense. Number six, never check your interpretation with other Christians. 
This is a big blunder. And now we do this with really fancy language. And we do things like this. We read a passage of scripture and we say, Holy Spirit told me. We don't even say the Holy Spirit anymore. We say, Holy Spirit told me that this passage means such and such, even though nobody ever thought it meant that. <laughs> even though nobody agrees with me, Holy Spirit told me this is what the passage means. Wow. So what that is, is and I'm going to be a little bit direct with you, what that means is you're taking the Lord's name in vain. When you claim that the Holy Spirit says something that the Holy Spirit has not said, or when you claim that he hasn't said something that he has said, what you're really doing is you're taking the Lord's name in vain. You're attributing something to God that, that is not attributable to God. And what we do is we couch it in religious terms and we say, Holy Spirit told me and so no one can argue with me. Well, the way that the Holy Spirit has inspired the text of the Bible and the way that God has set up the church is that the interpretation of Scripture should be done in community. It should not be done in an isolated fashion where somebody comes up with some wacky idea, some strange interpretation of a passage, and nobody else around them, no other believer would agree with them on that, but they're right because they say the Holy Spirit told them. Wow, that is a dangerous, dangerous way of interpreting the Bible. The way that God has set this whole thing up is that people would look at his word and interpret his word. And in general, you're going to see a consensus across the board. Aha, we think we understand what this text means. And then others say, yeah, we think we understand what it means too. This is what we think it means. Yeah, that's what we think it means. Even the whole uh, 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 argument and subject of the canon of Scripture what should be included in the Bible, what should not be included in the Bible. This was not decided by a bunch of people who sat around in a room and rolled dice. This was pretty well people said, well, we see this body of literature and we have a kind of a unanimous consensus here that this is inspired by God. And ultimately, it passes the Jesus test. You know, Jesus uh, mentions a whole, a whole section of Scripture from the Old Testament as being inspired. And he talks about the teaching of the apostles and so forth as being inspired. And so it, ultimately, it passes the Jesus test. But all of this is done in community. And when you isolate yourself and you, you use language, religious language, like the Holy Spirit told me, or we take the the out, Holy Spirit told me, wow. Well, what did he tell other people about the text? You should find out. Because if you're way off what everybody else is saying, chances are you're way off what everybody else is saying. It's to be interpreted in community with other Christians. The teaching of Scripture has always been done that way historically. Number seven, we only have a couple more. Interpret a passage in a way that changes the meaning because you don't like what it says. So Jesus gives very, very narrow restrictions, for example, on the subject of divorce. 
basically what we see in the scripture is that adultery is basically the only reason why Jesus will tolerate divorce. When someone is unfaithful, there is a tearing away of that marriage bond and it becomes very difficult to repair it. In the modern age, that doesn't even have to be a physical affair. People can have affairs with images and pornography and there's this tearing away that happens. And what Jesus is saying is, except for adultery. You can read that in Matthew 19, for example. So he gives a very, very narrow restriction. So this idea in context, that passage was, you know, can a person divorce for any and all reasons? And Jesus says, no. So if you don't like your spouses and in that time, it would be the wife because the husband would be the one commanding the divorce. You don't like your spouse's behavior. You don't like their, their looks or you don't like the way they cooked your meal. You cannot, therefore, put your wife out and divorce her. You cannot do that. And this is what Jesus was enforcing in that passage. So we pick up a passage like that and we say, well, you know, I know what Jesus says, but doesn't Jesus want me to be happy? And, you know, this spouse of mine, it makes me, she makes me miserable, or he makes me miserable, so Jesus wants me to be happy. I know what he's saying over here, but, you know, I, he wants me to be happy, and so I'm going to get a divorce. To, to do that is to basically ignore the text because you don't like what it says. Friends, there are many things that I read in the Scripture, and I don't like what it says, but the problem is not the Scripture. The problem is me. And I have to change my view and I have to change my life because the scripture's way is the right way and mine is probably the wrong way, you see? And that's what disciples do. Uh, they don't just say, well, because I don't like it, I will change what it means. No, we have no right to do that. We have to respect the meaning that the Holy Spirit has for the text. Number eight, build major doctrines from obscure passages. Um, here's a case in point, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 29. Paul is talking about the resurrection of the dead, and he's arguing that it is real. And he uses several different examples, and here is one of them, one of his arguments here. It's kind of a side argument. And he says, if, P if the resurrection doesn't happen, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? And people say, oh, okay, so we can baptize for the dead then. If a person is passed away and they never were baptized, well, let's have some kind of ceremony where we baptize them in proxy. And we baptize for the dead. The Mormons do this. The Church of uh, Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints does this. This is to build a major doctrine out of a very minor and incidental and obscure passage. To be sure, the Corinthians were doing this. We don't know why they were doing it. We don't know what was going on in their head. Paul doesn't say it's good. He doesn't say it's bad. He just says, if you folks say there's no resurrection of the dead, then why are you baptizing for them? If you don't believe in that, if it doesn't, if it's not real, if there's no resurrection, this is what he's doing. He's not saying, okay, now we have to build a doctrine. We have to start baptizing on behalf of the dead. Do you see? And so you cannot build a major doctrine out of an, out of an obscure passage. To do so is to push something into the text uh, that isn't there and to interpret it in a way that it wasn't intended to be interpreted. Are you still with me? Okay. You got a question? Okay. We got one more. Um, uh, and this is the, the, the last blunder, to read your presupposition 
into the text. And I'll give you a common example. This is a little bit controversial these days, as I've said in recent weeks. And so we say, well, look, we live in the 21st century, and uh, you, you know, men and women are equal in every single way. Anything men can do, women can do. Anything women can do, men can do. There's really no difference in, in gender or in roles. There's no such thing as complementary uh, 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 roles for men and women. They're all the same. And, you know, that, that's an archaic idea. That's an idea that leads to abuse. That's an idea that causes all kinds of problems. So there's no way that the Bible can say that. There's no way. It's impossible. The Bible cannot teach such an idea that men and women have different roles because we just, we just don't believe that anymore. And so what do we do? We, we approach the, the, the text with a presupposition like that, and we see texts that, that may teach complementary roles. We say, well, it's impossible. They cannot mean that there's complementary roles because we do not accept that in the modern 21st century world, and therefore, the text cannot mean that. Well, excuse me, who are we to impose that on the text? If the text is teaching that, and if the text means that, then we must ruefully agree that that's what it means. Now, if our culture doesn't accept it and our culture rejects it, well, it's, it's the culture versus the text. But don't try and say that the text doesn't mean that. And we see this not only with an example like roles of men and women, we also see it in terms of gender values and, and uh, the whole thing of same-sex marriage and sexuality, and now we're choosing our gender. I mean, it's going gonna, it's gonna to start to become illegal now to, to say, I, I, I would say in the distant future, even churches uh, may be penalized in a legal sense for saying something like you know, homosexuality is sin. Uh, that is not a, an accepted idea today in 21st century culture. If you say that publicly, you will be absolutely blasted for saying something as archaic and something as narrow-minded and something as arrogant as what I just said. Well, the problem is that you know Romans 1, for example, would teach that. It would say that that behavior is sin. And it always has said that and it always has meant that but just because we live in a culture that rejects such archaic, in our view, ideas does not give us the right to say the text does not mean that. To do so is to disrespect what God has written. We may, we may well disagree. We may well take the Bible and throw it across the room. I had a friend many, many years ago who took the Bible and, and, and it had to do with that particular thing with homosexuality that he was struggling with. And he said, I took the Bible and I threw it across the room because of what it said to me and what it said to my lifestyle. At least he understood what the text was teaching. He did not like it, but at least he understood it and he respected that this is what the text was teaching him. And I don't know where he is at today, but again, we cannot make it mean something that it doesn't mean and read our presupposition into it just because we don't like it. So at the end of the day, here's your lesson for the day. If you've got nothing else, nothing else, here's your lesson. If you go to the last slide, just because the passage can be interpreted in a certain way doesn't mean it should be. You can make the Bible say anything you want. I can make the Bible say that the world is flat. 
I can make the Bible say that there's some sort of master race. I can justify polygamy with the Bible. I can justify racism with the Bible. I can even justify atheism with the Bible. There is a way to do that. Just because it can be interpreted in a certain way doesn't mean it should. And you know you're growing when you pick up the Bible and you read it with the proverbial blank slate. You say, well, God, I may not like it. It may rub me the wrong way, but I think I know what it means. And that is when you know that you're starting to grow as a believer. You can get that steady diet into your life and you begin to see, okay, this is what God is really saying. And this is what he means when he says what he